This week, our executive producer, Adam Gobesti, suggested we watch the 1997 movie Vegas Vacation. That's because he knows what a huge Wayne Newton fan I am. But for your sake, we decided to watch the 1976 film Network instead. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cinematic Respect. I'm Charlie Wallace, and I'm your first and only co-host today. But we actually have two guests. Uh, I'd like to welcome to the studio returning guest, Doug Gobeski. Live and in the flesh. And can you actually be a co-host if you don't have a co-host, Charlie? If I have like a spiritual co-host who's in here and who's here in spirit. <laughs> Wait. Jessica's still okay, right? That's what this area is over here. <laughs> I mean, I see the empty space in the We're recording studio, but... No, Jessica is still okay. Okay. Yes. <laughs> in that case, <laughs> it's great to be here. <laughs> and uh, joining us remotely, another returning guest and author, Amber Elby. Welcome back to the show, Amber. Hey, it's great to be here and talk about another movie that I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine, right? I mean, that's... That's useful discussion, too. You don't have to like everything. It, I feel like it's my job now. Like, it's expected of me. No, we need that. Like, I'm the fanboy who likes everything, and you're the, the naysayer who can look more critically at things. I'm the foil. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this week, we picked a movie that neither of you had seen, the 1976 film Network, which we'll get into this, but especially nowadays, it feels fairly prescient. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in that movie that uh, is going on today or has been going on the last couple of decades. So I actually kind of wanted to flip the idea a little bit and wonder if anyone could think of a movie that did a really bad job at predicting what would happen in the future. Doug, what what do you got? Man, you want a movie that you look at and you're like, that is not how things turned out? Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. (laughs) No crazy eugenics wars. No whack job dictator guy getting shot off into space after being, I don't know, genetically engineered or genetically re-engineered to be the ideal human. Just crazy wackadoodle stuff. We ain't got none of that. So I kind of went for sci-fi too, and I chose Moonraker because oh. <laughs> a, a lot of the James oh. Bond films are pretty close. Like we have watches that talk to us now, and I'm sure there are exploding pens and all of that stuff, but not so much the lasers and space and all of those things. That we know of. It's true. <laughs> Your choice actually makes me a little bit sad, Amber. <laughs> Why? Do you want all of those things? Yeah, Moonraker is so much fun. <laughs> well, I guess you just have to like join MI6. I'm not British. They have foreign operatives? I feel like we've established this. I'm just going to end up being Felix, you know? <laughs> so my pick is uh, The Lawnmower Man, which had a very <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> very interesting concept about how, uh, how our world was hurtling towards uh, a completely virtual reality. <laughs> <laughs> and that someone would take over the internet while it was still in uh, dial-up <laughs> dial-up speeds. This does take us back to James Bond, though, right? Because doesn't it have Pierce Brosnan in it? It does, yes. <laughs> so on to actually talking about the movie we picked for today, Network. Um, why this particular film? I think we just had an argument about who picked it. <laughs> I believe we, that we concluded that the person who picked it was our executive, well, 
your executive producer, Adam Gobeski. <laughs> I'm willing to say the universe who, picked this movie for us. <laughs> who more or less did it based on when I was previously on the show, this was one of the ones that I discussed doing. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Okay. But 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 why network? You know, I've I've seen the uh I'm mad as hell and I'm not gonna take it anymore clip in a few things over the years and thought to myself, yeah, that seems like a pretty fun movie. I want to I want to hear more about what that guy's shtick is. <laughs> so you are as so you were wrapped like his audience. <laughs> yeah, that was the part that I had seen, too. And I was actually convinced that I'd seen this film until I watched it. And then I didn't remember any of it. But now <laughs> I'm wondering if I did see it and just didn't like it so much that I repressed all of it, except for the mad as hell scene. Yeah, so. that's possible because I've seen this. I think at least a couple other times before this. And yeah, I forget most of the non Howard Beale stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, granted, I've seen it, you know, twice in the last month, but still. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the whole movie, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. The stuff I'm, I'm forgetting I'm... about it. The Howard yeah, Beale like, stuff is important, but it's, you know, it's my favorite framework. part, but yeah. I wish there were more of it. <laughs> more crazy guy talking is what you'd like to see from this. Dude, he's uh, not. Okay, no, he is crazy, but he's a modern-day prophet. Prophet for the TV era, you know? <laughs> the dude speaks the truth. And if you didn't forget, they had him stand in front of a big stained-glass window. So <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> uh, did you have any preconceived notions about what this this would be, Doug? Beyond just the mad as hell? Do you think it was going to be that way the whole time? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I just assumed it was going to be about some dude who was essentially a proto Glenn Beck figure, mm. uh, you know, in his rise through the media and how he just, you know, rewrites the whole media landscape kind of thing, you know, while, while being uh, an iconoclast. Don't, don't take that as an endorsement of Glenn Beck though. <laughs> I want to be clear. Uh, Amber, how about you? Well, I went into it knowing that I would be somewhat uncomfortable because whenever there's an older satire, you have to wonder like how much of it has happened. And then because it has happened, it made my skin crawl a little bit. And I'm sure this is something we'll get into. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to look at it as being funny in the satirical sense when it's no longer a warning of what is to come and is more of a reflection of what has come. So let's start off with a little synopsis for folks who might not have seen this in a little while. Howard Beale, played by Peter Finch, is fired as news anchor for the struggling national TV network UBS. Rather than go quietly, he announces he will commit suicide on air. Programming director Diana Christensen, played by Faye Dunaway, and network executive Frank Hackett, played by Robert Duvall, decide to let him stay on the air as a result of a massive ratings increase. In the process, they push out the news director, Max Schumacher, played by William Holden, who doesn't want to exploit his friend's breakdown. Diana and Max begin a doomed relationship, and when Howard's ratings begin to sink again, Diana and Frank come up with a creative solution. It's not a bad synopsis, huh? No, I wrote yeah, it no. down because yeah. I always have trouble with that part. Is that, did you write that yourself? <laughs> I wrote that. Well, I, I'm always... Like, it's so much easier just to go on IMDb or something and read that description. But I'm like, okay. I could write a... Well, we just talked about this. Like, I could write a better description than that. <laughs> it's pretty good. I like it. Um, So, wait, where are we going from here? I don't know. If you wanted, I could introduce my thesis at the top. So, let's do that, Doug. Uh, so, you actually came to my place today and we re- rewatched the movie. And you said at the top you had some sort of theory that you were looking to validate on this watch through yeah because like i you know kind of picked up on it (laughs) kind of beaten over the head with it uh 
on the first viewing and was like, wait, is that really the way that this whole thing plays out? And then, you know, so I needed to watch it again. And my take is essentially when Schumacher calls Diana, he's like, you're television incarnate. I'm just, I'm just like, wait, wait a second. That's it. That is basically what this movie is about. It is like, she's not really a fully fleshed out actual human character. She literally is the physical embodiment of television, of the media. So this is a satire and an allegory. Yeah. Like I had been expecting going into it that this is going to be the Howard Beale show. It's going to be about, you know, one man's, uh, one iconoclast's crusade to tell America the truth about how things are. And instead, it ends up being a story about a television executive's toxic relationship with television itself in the form of uh, his relationship with Diana Christensen, played by Faye Dunaway. It's really interesting because there are a lot of movies that won't go out of their way to tell you at some point what they're about. Or this is one that, yeah, it's towards the end, but they do have that specific line. When we have the scene early on where Max and Diana are having dinner together and she's talking about how she's a terrible lay, just just a little bit of action, really fast climaxes, and then just, you know, yeah, whatever. It It's kind of like... You know, television is all yeah, about the soundbite. Yeah, you know, I haven't caught onto that specifically. It's, it's all about the 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 spectacle, the action, and that very famous scene later where they're showing the montage of them going on a date and going to the hotel room and then having sex. And <laughs> the whole time she just keeps talking and talking and talking, like about television. Yeah, about television, <laughs> but it's almost like a television being on in the background. <laughs> and. And there's all the talk about the ratings and the numbers that really mean nothing to anyone who's not a TV executive. I don't know how you all felt about this, but I felt like I could have had a lot of the movie on mute and still have gotten it because so much of it was about those in TV and in the TV business have their own vocabulary that they use to talk about things. And she was using that vocabulary for so much of the film. Yeah, she was. And they, I think, purposefully don't explain to you exactly what those terms mean. Right. And for me as a viewer, that actually, you know, has an effect where you're you're watching these people almost as an insider, you know, in they have their own weird little culture and you're not being inculcated into it. And yeah, that's it's especially with there not being a soundtrack. It's very much oh, like right. yep. you're eavesdropping. Oh. Yeah, the only music in the movie is the I think the theme song. Wow. For the show, yeah. and it's then the, some of the it's commercials. The news yeah. Do do do. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> I don't know the other so, stuff of it. Just the first bar. It it was almost like a faux documentary for a lot of it, and but even a lot of documentaries will add in soundtracks afterwards. But this one didn't have it, and so there was this weird like you're kind of watching a news show about a news show, and then at the end when they use the same camera angles like on the TV broadcast that we had just seen when it was part of the fictionalized story. That's the crossover like between fiction and newsroom. For me, like I, I kind of interpreted the movie, particularly with the narration as this isn't so much a documentary as this is the televised or cinematic version of Schumacher's memoir. Like at one point he kind of gets, you know, 
ticked off and you know kicks the manuscript and he's like every dang guy who's been fired from this job in the last 20 years has written a stupid book about how oh the great days of the 50s are past and it was so wonderful nobody wants to read that you know and i kind of got the impression that like with the narration uh he kind of realized that yeah nobody wants to read that i'm gonna tell a different story and it's the one that you're watching right now in front of you that's a cool take on it. I would actually watch it with that lens, I think, to like kind of see how much of it is like just from his perspective, I would say. If you could take the whole thing from being from his perspective. Which I I basically did when I was <laughs> kind of realized it wasn't <laughs> going to be the Howard Beale show. <laughs> so since we're talking about whose show it is, who are you supposed to sympathize with? Are you supposed to sympathize with anyone or are you supposed to be disconnected and watching it as an outsider? I think the way it's written and directed, I think you're supposed to be sympathizing with Max. I'm not sure, especially in this day and age, whether I felt a lot of sympathy for him. I mean, for the first part I did, but the part where he leaves his wife, I think, is where I kind of lose the thread for that. I wonder, too, since you're talking about different perspectives with this day and age, could we replace this with YouTube or some, I don't want to say <laughs> podcasting, but some kind of... You, you leave your girlfriend to be a streamer? <laughs> I don't know. Could you could you replace the news network with some kind of other or attention seeking media and have yeah, the story Twitch still streamers. work? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's so mm. the media landscape is so like fragmented into different things now. Like television was very monolithic at the time, like television, radio and, then you know, newsprint. And now we still have all of those things, but there's a lot of different social media platforms. So, I mean, maybe you could do like social media in general. Yeah, it's it's so it's so diluted though. And during the the Mad as Hell scene where they show the exterior of the buildings and everyone's out there yelling, I was thinking, yeah, that wouldn't happen now. I mentioned during that scene that I thought that was very much like Twitter. <laughs> it's a bunch of people yelling out angrily at each other and nobody listening. <laughs> in Twitter, we yell into a void. Yeah, like, exactly. No one else hears us. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess that's fair. I, I think you got a good point there, Amber. I read a, an essay recently where somebody was talking about how you, you look at the, the kind of fragmentation of the modern media landscape, and the argument they were putting forward was essentially that the mid-20th century monolithic media where it was here's your propaganda and everybody gets the same propaganda was in the context of just history kind of an aberration and we've more or less just reverted to the way things were back in like pre-20th century history where you you know you just kind of had your like tribalism or like your local regional news and type stuff and you you weren't getting information about what was happening on the other side of the planet in any sort of reasonable time frame so it didn't matter to you we've reverted to gossip is what you're saying yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean that, that is what twitter and facebook and everything is right mm-hmm so this is why politics are so weird now, because we don't have this single stream propaganda machine. And I wonder how in the 70s, when I was not alive, um, how it would have felt different to the people who were watching network back then, if they would have become paranoid of their single stream media. Oh, given that Howard Beale is telling people the truth in that, you know, in the context of the movie, this is actually a new thing. If you think you're saying people would, you know, look at that and say, wait, has my news anchor in the real world been kind of making stuff up, you know, spinning things, lying to me? 
Yeah, and so I wonder if this helped helped create the different views that we have today and the different resources that people can go to if they want to get so-called news. But it's easy to forget, too, that, I mean, it is a satire and was taken to be a lot more satirical at the time. (laughs) So I think viewing it back then, if you were very astute, you might have that opinion like, oh, I'm getting all my information from one source. But you'd probably be like, ha ha ha, that is funny. And yes, that points out some of the not as extreme problems that we currently have that we should fix. Like, I'm not sure that people really watched this movie and thought, yes, everything will be going in that direction. Well, they were told it was funny just from the poster. Um, I was looking at the what's credited as the theatrical release poster, and it's basically a cartoon. (laughs) (laughs) It has a drawing of like a cloud with lightning coming out of it, and then a bunch of newsprint kind of raining down. And the text, which is bigger than the actual title of the film, is prepare yourself for a perfectly outrageous motion picture. So it's pretty clear that it was sold as being funny. I mean, I laughed at parts. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't funny, but yeah, it's not a rolling in the aisle sort of funny. Like that might suggest. It's not Paul Blart Mall Cop. No, or Paul Blart Mall Cop too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're not at the part where you recommend films yet. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen those yet, so we're we're reserving those for future yeah. episodes. Doesn't mean you can't recommend as it. Guests. Oh, nice. <laughs> But I was watching, I I actually went kind of off book and was watching South Park to prepare for this because I was like, that's modern satire. And yeah, well, I was kind of watching it anyway, but then I decided to tie it into this. Um, And I, I laugh a lot more out loud at that kind of thing than I did with Network. Network was more of like a kind of uncomfortable chuckle from me. And I'm sure it's just because, as I said, I was not alive in 1976. So it's obviously a, an intended audience situation where I get the jokes in South Park more. But um, it's I, I do really wish that I could know how much out loud laughter there was in a theater and how much uh, it was just kind of internalized understanding that it was funny. I second that. Yeah. Yeah, because I got this distinct feeling watching it that like, as as just a modern audience member, I simply can't know what it was like to have watched this movie when it came out. So George Clooney was showing this to a group of younger people, and most of them didn't react to it or didn't think it was a satire because so many of the things were actually represented in the real world now. So I don't think it's unique to us. I think it's anybody who didn't live through that time period or through that through that moment in history where... The television news was that important. So at one point, Diana calls out Max for the content of his news program. She's like, oh, yeah, you know, you got like cats being rescued from trees and two minutes of actual news, some commentary, and the rest is just a bunch of pablum. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I feel like she missed a a report about alarming things that teens are doing these days. <laughs> and is your teen part of it? <laughs> You know, but other than that, maybe that's just because that's a local news thing. Well, wouldn't make the network news. It is a fair assessment on her part. I mean, just because <laughs> they they have this sense of self-righteousness about what it is they're presenting as the news. Like, there is a bunch of crap on it still, right? I yeah. mean, maybe it's more important than what the news network ultimately ends up being, but they don't necessarily have the highest horse to sit on. I did think it was a little bit interesting near the beginning of the movie where there, you know, Howard Beale goes off on his, you know, crazy rant and uh, he's down in the lobby later with, you know, all of these press people talking to him. 
where it's like, here we've got the news reporting on the news. Right, yeah. That's your news. <laughs> it was just like, oh, huh. And, and yeah, like the Daily Show is practically, that's their whole shtick. So if we're talking about the current state of media, I think the thing that really struck me when I watched this movie was the phrase articulating the popular rage. I think that more than anything is describing exactly what they're doing and what's happening right now is that people want to listen to somebody who's as angry as they are to describe what it is that they're feeling. And even if it's just completely emotional and has no real argument behind it. Charlie, I could not disagree with you more yeah? on that. You have like half of the story and I would argue you don't have the important half either. But okay, uh, explain yourself. Yeah, okay. So the thing about Howard Beale is, yeah, the dude's angry and he wants you to know it, but what he's angry about is how the media has essentially presented this picture of the world, and that's not the way the world is. This dude is here going up on TV, telling it like it is. You know, there's actually one of his rants. He complains about how, the you know, it's all just lies what they show you. And you look at the modern media landscape and those rage mongers that you're talking about, the people who, you know, their whole shtick is to sell you outrage. They're not selling you. They're not telling you the truth. They're giving you a version of events that has been twisted and sculpted specifically to upset you, not because it's inherently upsetting, but because the way in which they are choosing to present it, to frame it, is meant to upset you. And in that, in doing so, they're not like, it's no longer the truth. They're basically lying to you. Oh, so the difference here is that Howard Beale explains to you why, why you're angry as opposed to now they, they make you angry on purpose. Yeah. Well, yeah. I agree. Well, they're except they're that, selling the anger. Yeah, that's true. I mean, but that's, but the quote I'm talking about, I think comes from Diana twice. So she's the one who talks about, it's important that the audience is enraged and that somebody can speak to that rage. Mm. So actually, I think this movie is maybe a better, better version of <laughs> than now, right? Because at least you're so, right. Somebody's telling the truth, at least, to you. So it's almost like Howard's just being manipulated by Diana. Like, she's just using him as a means to an end. Yeah, well, absolutely. Ooh. That, and that's, that would explain the ending. Yeah. Yeah, the, the mysterious ending that was left out of the synopsis. Are we going to spoil it? Oh, no, of course. We're all, uh, on this show, we always we talk about whatever we want to talk about. And if you haven't seen the movie and are worried about spoilers, go watch the movie. It, the ending for me was where I kind of realized like, oh, this is why people think it's satire. Because it had that re weird turn where they're kind of talking about, well, what should we do about Beale? And he's, you know, his ratings are down. And how are we going to address this issue? And then Diana was like, oh, I know some terrorists and we can just kill him. That's that's what happened. He got assassinated on screen. So watching that scene again, the first time I was like, oh, well, maybe they're testing each other because it took them a little bit while to respond, like saying like, oh, are, is everyone in here really serious when they say that? And this time around, I didn't get that at all. It's like, yep. They're all pretty much on board immediately with this. <laughs> They're all thinking along the same lines. And just how I imagine it would be in real politics. There was no, like, maybe we'll go to jail. Or maybe there was. It just wasn't a big deal. There was no concern of consequence for this. Or no morality. No, like, but we'll be killing a person. What about his family? It was just like, okay, this will solve our TV problem. 
Well, the one guy does a token, uh, hey, you know, this is a capital crime you're talking about. But I don't think he was really concerned so about the So it shouldn't victim. get back to the network, <laughs> is yeah. what he said. Yeah. yeah. But what I, lo- what I actually loved about that scene is towards the end, there's that guy who... They're trying to figure out, okay, what's going to happen after we kill him? Like, how are we going to pay for all of this? And he's like, well, I think he has a buyout contract. I think it's 50% after the first year and <laughs> with all these different addendums. And, like, you just say, keep saying, like, I think it's this. But, like, he's memorized the entire thing <laughs> before he's even gotten to the meeting. Oh, I didn't even clue in yeah. on that. He's very specific in knowing what they need to do financially. That's what matters, right? There's no – there's emotion – related to the news which is the mad as hell type thing but there's not emotion related to interpersonal relationships which is why the sex scenes are so weird but there's never an emotional connection between any of the characters that i can think of yeah like even when uh max and his wife are having their uh their breakup he's just kind of like actually both of them i think are kind of framing it in, oh, well, you know, how is this going to play out in terms of a story? You know, almost like right. they're they're trying to pitch a news piece. So I disagree a little bit with that. I think that's one of the few points in the movie where there is a reasonable amount of emotion displayed. I think everywhere else, when you talk about Faye Dunaway's character, she's the physical embodiment of television, right? So I think that's the perfect what you're saying, right? Is that you're not really getting anything back from her. And Max, you know, talks about that a lot, but... I think that scene TV, with his wife is TV very different from the rest. Back. Yeah. <laughs> but that does touch on something else I wanted to talk about, which is that Max keeps talking about like, oh, this is the point of the story where this happens, like between the wife and the wife he's leaving and his mistress. He talks about that with his own wife. And then he talks about that with uh, Faye Dunaway later. And I maybe this is just because it's an older style of screenplay and acting. Maybe you can speak with this, Amber, but it felt very stagey to me like a stage play almost like all of those lines that he's delivering and and this did win for for best screenplay didn't it for an academy award yeah so and i'm not saying that's a bad thing i feel so i was wondering is it are they intentionally making it feel like a stage play in that sense so that like yeah it is kind of like this television show that you're watching or was just a, that just a little bit more of the style of the screenplay in general that was more of the style. Star Wars a, a year later was uh, basically the start of modern screenwriting. So this was the old fashioned kind of you could compare this more to films of the 40s and 50s in terms yes, of how the yeah. script was written rather than uh, films of the later 70s. It was Star Wars introduced the shorter scenes, the uh, like lack of continuous exposition. Uh, and so older films would have the longer scenes uh, they'd have more talking about stuff, repeating things, maybe talking about things that you saw already. And modern writers don't do that to the same degree. But Max does also predict what's going to happen in his story. He talks about it earlier, how he's going to leave his wife and then come back to her later at the end of the movie. That is what he does. With uh, the screenwriter, and uh, he was lauded at the time uh, and complimented for being so uh, prescient of the future. So I was reading a quote. Uh, from Aaron Sorkin, who's also a screenwriter and a producer, uh, that said, no predictor of the future, not even Orwell, has been as right as Chayefsky uh, was when he wrote Network. I I think a lot of the emphasis of the film is on content and not so much like the actual plot structure. Yeah, so a lot of the scenes sort of is set up for an idea, almost, rather than is furthering the plot 
like a lot of these like pitch meeting scenes and boardroom meetings. That makes sense with Doug's allegory theory, too, that it's trying to represent different aspects of the media and the news. And it's not so much about characters and them having feelings like normal people would have. It's them being part of the bigger picture in this kind of prophetic sense. Doug and I were talking during the film, too, about the part that seems like it almost doesn't fit is the whole ecumenical liberation movement (laughs) section, which I thought was weird. First of all, it's supposed to be this parallel to the Symbionese liberation movement. So the whole thing with Patty Hearst that happened in the 70s, which they talk about, and I guess they could have used, but then for some reason, after they've talked about it, they introduced this other group that's going to represent that same situation. You mean mean because they talked about the real life SLA? Yes, exactly. And they came up with their own... Within the ca- yeah, within okay. the course of the movie, it's like, well, you've nodded to the fact that this actually exists, but well, then you're going to use this fake group. I don't know if they had like yeah, ex- liability ex- issues or not liability, but like, well, they'd have to probably pay people for life rights. But it, they yeah, I guess yeah, existed. yeah. <laughs> they established that it existed within their universe, and they refer to other news networks by actual real names too, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there is this real world crossover um, within the fictional universe of. Uh, what what was their network called? Was it US U- UBS UBS UBS? I want to say USB, but that which is I the presume U- is the no, Universal it's, it's Broadcasting it's Service, something like or that. Or system yeah. system, yeah. Well, it's worth noting that the uh, the Coca Cola and the Cuddy Sark Scotch are also things that really exist in our world, <laughs> prominently displayed. Yeah. <laughs> so, how did? I thought it was interesting, Charlie, when you read the uh, synopsis at the beginning that you didn't talk about the, the slightly fictionalized terrorist group that they were trying to make. Into yeah, because I thought it docudrama. was not really necessary for the. F- I mean, that aspect, I think, is kind of necessary because just from a satirical point of view. But like, yeah, you're talking about all these scenes that plot wise don't necessarily move things along. And it's like those could have been taken out, except that. Some of those were the ones we were laughing at the most, too. Yeah. Um. On my first viewing, that was one thing which kind of stuck with me was, like, you know, just the difference between the 2010s and the 1970s is the 1970s, you know, in America, you actually had some noteworthy left-wing terrorist groups out there. Mm-hmm. People worried about whatever weird communists as well, I'm sure. Um. Actually... This is perhaps a little embarrassing, but I had to look it up to verify that, oh, yeah, that was a real thing where they mentioned that a couple people tried to assassinate President Ford. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, for me, at least, I'd never, I just never hear about that in modern times. It, nobody ever mentions it in anything I read. So I was just like, wait, what? So for me, the, the ecumenical liberation army was really just kind of giving you that, like, like setting the tone, giving you like uh, the atmosphere of what was really going on in America at the time. And from a story standpoint, it's foreshadowing because if the news network is willing to work with terrorists, the next logical step would be the news network becomes terrorists if it's going to continue to escalate. Well, I don't know. I mean, the way in which the movie proceeded, at least, it was more that the terrorists were corrupted by the media rather than the other way around. <laughs> yeah, it's a two-way street. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you got the... the Even before, I, it was actually a little bit amusing to me to see the, the great Ahmed Khan eating KFC 
Like, I don't know why, but that just seemed like the, the height of commercialism. And then later on, they're having this, you know, argument essentially over how they're going to do the financial structure of this business deal. You know, and you're just kind of sitting here. It's like, you know, these, these guys are supposed to be like friggin' idealist, left-wing radicals, okay. And when you get right down to it, they're really just concerned about the bottom line. Yeah, you know the the lady screaming about how she's not going to see any money until it's in syndication. It's <laughs> like what? They're seduced by the numbers. That's what so much of this is about. Everyone is always chasing after the numbers, whether the numbers are money or ratings or both, because they go hands in hand. But this idea of we need better numbers. It's almost like an athlete who's trying to like better their personal best time they're always trying to get more and more and so it's comes down to like greed right Ah, that seems really obvious for me to say but they're they're greedy with the numbers like how ned Beatty in his big speech to howard beale there is no america there is no democracy there is only ibm and itt and at&t and dupont dow union carbide And Exxon, those are the nations of the world today. What do you think the Russians talk about in their councils of state? Karl Marx? They get out their linear programming charts, statistical decision theories, min and max solutions, and compute the price, cost, probabilities of their transactions and investments, just like we do. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. Like, that one stuck out to me as just like a a relatively new-at-the-time concept. Because I know, like, from the 50s on, that sort of scientization of business was was all the rage <laughs> so it was just really funny that, but again it's you know he's saying oh yeah you know us the commies everybody it's all about the numbers yeah that was i think far and away my favorite scene of the entire movie and <laughs> my favorite performance was ned Beatty right there i mean it's it's over the top <laughs> and he's quoted as saying like he was only there for a day and got an oscar nomination for it <laughs> <laughs> But I don't know. I just I had so much fun watching him in that scene. So since you you both seem to like that so much, why do you think the mad as hell scene is the one that everyone talks about and the one they show in film classes and that? What makes that so relatable? I think it's easily digested into a soundbite is what it is. Or, yeah, by like, design. I mean, that's it has to be for in the context of the movie. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! So, yeah, it is a good point that 
maybe that's why it's continued to be used because <laughs> in the movie it's a good sound bite for them to keep playing to like promote their show but in real life then that's what it ends up being too i think it's universally relatable we're all like all you have to do is turn on the news at any time or go onto twitter and you'll see that a lot of people are really mad yeah but their rage doesn't get channeled anywhere i think that's the interesting part of the movie is that i mean doug you even came in and said like that's the part you know about the movie and you thought it was going to be about that yeah and it's not because when even attempts to do something like that that's when ned Beatty decides to interfere yeah because he's actually have real world results for what he's yeah, the rage he, that he's channeling. He's managed to articulate the Americans' rage and point out that, hey, it's the Saudis here that are the problem, and you need to tell the White House that they can't let this happen. And you know what? People actually go ahead and do that. So it's like... So it's, it's about the news directing rage, which is pretty much what happens today. And never hurting the bottom line. Yeah. Like, that was that was like righteous rage, yeah. though. I don't know that I would describe modern news rage as righteous. <laughs> I just wanted to talk a little bit about the cinematography and how it was so newsroom style where and, and there was this weird crossover at the end, too, where when it showed Beale's body laying there in the little TV screens, it was the same shot that had been used for the fictional sto- story that we had seen earlier. So you don't really know where the line is. And the the lack of a soundtrack goes along with this. You don't know where the line is between fiction and perceived reality. Oh, well, I just assumed that that was the that camera guy on that ridiculously massive dolly just being pushed up and zooming in. But it would have it you would have seen the camera in the shot though. There would have been or there would have been obstruction of the shot. At least that was the feeling I got. Like how could they have had this shot that they're showing us later unless we were somehow looking through the same lens they were they were i it's actually rather they were looking through the same lens that we were does that I can make maybe sense maybe understand that for the shooters yeah because where would they have the camera that got the image of the shooters guess we'd need to watch again to know how many cameras were they using to film his show yeah it looked like only like, one they, but i i think yeah i think did it's they another potentially have audience reaction shots first off or audience pans it felt kind of breaking the fourth wall for me. It was a reminder of uh, the fact that they were aware that it was fiction. Huh. I just took it to be that they had, since they knew what was going to happen ahead of time, could place cameras in the appropriate spots. So just another <laughs> little bit of satire. <laughs> yeah, I guess they were, they were just that bold. And then maybe nobody picked up on it. Yeah. Yikes. It is. Uh, the whole thing is very Jerry Springer. Yeah, where it does have the in, the the audience reactions and uh, and then you know there it's not quite the same as throwing chairs and fighting. It's one step up from that. But this was obviously before Jerry Springer was on TV, so yep. more of the uh, predictive aspect. Yeah, Roger Ebert in his I think retrospective review of this movie talked about wow when they wrote this could they have predicted the rise of Jerry Springer and the WWF. <laughs> Right, I'm like, oh man, we were so innocent back in the '90s when he wrote that. The the World Wildlife. Sorry, the WWE. (laughs) Oh, okay. I don't remember when that switched over from one to the other. (laughs) I don't know the whole history, so some uh, people who have a wrestling podcast can uh, so you can tweet at me and uh, correct me there. Wrestlesplania. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, Which is an actual podcast, by the way. Oh, I believe it. 
Yeah. Uh, but it was just so funny that he brought up two things that now we look at look back at them and are like, well, yeah, they were staged, but everybody knew they were staged and they're reasonable entertainment. At least that's my take on those two things as opposed to what's going on now, which seems a little bit more sinister. <laughs> so yeah, for me, it was just like, oh, looking back at the 70s, like, oh, it was more innocent than even looking back at the 90s. Oh, yeah, that was so bad. <laughs> <laughs> But listening to them talk about the news in the 70s and all the horrible things that were happening then, too, talking about the different civil wars that were going on and Watergate was going on and like all of this stuff with Patty Hearst and the SLA was going on and like all that happening at the exact same time. And in the early 70s, it's, too, it was not unusual to show dead people on the news. Yeah, Vietnam. It's not yeah, normal now. Exactly. Like all of their feet. Like their Vietnam coverage was graphic, and there's no way that that would be allowed on television today. Maybe PBS. Uh, so, what are people's overall impressions of the movie? I think I've got an I sort of an idea of what each of you think, but if you could sum up how you feel about it, was it worth it? For my take, I would say definitely watch it once. Uh, the second viewing, I didn't enjoy nearly as much. Probably at least in part because I was actively looking for things to support my crazy ideas rather than just being able to just simply experience the movie. But certainly watch it once. It It's like a, a grim vision of future past. <laughs> and as I've said about other films that I've watched for your podcast, I do enjoy talking about it a lot more than actually watching it. Uh, I think it would be good as I've said so many times, for a film class, uh, some kind of social history class. Uh, because the talking about it's fun, the thinking about it's fun. I did not have fun watching it. And you all got to watch it together, so I'm sure that helped. But I was watching it with my cat, yeah. who is also sitting next to me right now. And uh, neither of us laughed that much. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I laughed a little bit more when Doug was here. There were some things that definitely having the other person with you. I mean, I watched it on my own for the first viewing, but which was oddly enough the viewing that I enjoyed more. Don't don't <laughs> hey, take that saying? personally, Charlie. <laughs> my take on it is that yeah, I'll agree with you, Doug. I think watching it one time is definitely worthwhile. I think from a cinematic like history perspective, it's something worth watching. And I love the performances, actually. I think that was my favorite part of it was again, I love Ned Beatty, even though he's only in it for a short period of time. <laughs> Uh, Faye Dunaway did a great job. Yes. As much as I ragged on her character, uh, the acting was phenomenal. Uh, so I, I found a lot of humor in the performances rather than exactly what the movie was trying to say. And for the reasons that we've talked about already, and we didn't even mention Robert Duvall, which is funny because I, out of all the stuff I've read, nobody really mentions Robert Duvall, but I thought he was great. I'm still, I'm a, well, we haven't mentioned Robert Duvall yet because we haven't gotten to the recommendations section. Of oh, the okay. Yet. So we'll uh, <laughs> we'll get there. Sorry to jump the gun on you, Doug. Um, so Doug Amber, uh, you've watched something that I thought you should watch. Now's your opportunity to tell the world something you think they should experience. So there's there's a scene early on in the movie where William Holden and Robert Duvall are kind of going at each other like like angry dogs and like. Robert Duvall is like, you're fired, you're fired, get out of here and stuff. And in my heart, I wanted nothing more than to just see William Holden pick up Robert Duvall and throw him out of the window, you know, just <laughs> just straight up murder him. <laughs> and for that reason, I would like to recommend watching the movie RoboCop. <laughs> 
Yeah, that that definitely has a lot more action than this one. <laughs> um, and if and if you've seen RoboCop, you'll you'll get the joke in my recommendation. So I'm going to recommend something for people who want to know more about news stuff. And that's The Newsroom, which was an HBO series that I believe was canceled after three seasons. But um, it had Aaron Sorkin as the executive producer, and I think he was the showrunner also. And he was a big fan of Network. So uh, you can say perhaps Network influenced his decision to make The Newsroom. But it's not uh, as satirical. Um, it's I don't think it's supposed to be funny. It's described as a drama. So uh, it still has a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff. It has uh, Jeff Daniels as... Uh, the the news anchor. Um, it also has Emily Mortimer, who co-stars in it, and she's going to be in the new Mary Poppins film, which is Mary Poppins Returns, which is what I am going to probably watch uh, instead of watching The Newsroom, which I just recommended to you. <laughs> <laughs> With Lin-Manuel, right? Yes, he's the man. He wrote a letter to my daughter. She wrote him a fan really? letter, and he wrote oh, back to awesome. her. So he's like my favorite person. <laughs> oh, neat. Hey, he seems like a really cool guy, actually. Yeah, so if you're not on Twitter, join Twitter and follow him. Oh, is because he not? It will really... make your day. Mm-hmm. No, he's great on Twitter. He says the good mornings and the good nights. Oh, I thought you said not on Twitter. Okay. No, if <laughs> like, you're what, not is he a on jerk Twitter. On... Oh, if you're not no, on no, Twitter. No, no, no. Okay. I will, Everyone I will, should join Twitter. I will take your recommendation under advisement. <laughs> or just, just buy the good morning and good night book. It's super cute. It's like Dr. Seuss for adults. So I had to kind of stretch to come up with this, but I was talking about how much I love Ned Beatty's performance in this. And there's a movie from 1999 called Spring Forward that actually stars him and Liv Schreiber. They're, it's like an ex-convict, and Ned Beatty plays this elderly co-worker of his, and it's kind of like a male bonding sort of talking movie. There's not a lot... <laughs> It's not a lot to say about it, except what? I think it's just really well written and well acted. And it's nice to see Ned Beatty in more of a starring role, which I usually see him in supporting roles. Doug, Amber, thank you very much for coming back on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you. It was fun being here. Thank you for the pizza. As yeah, well. thanks. <laughs> yeah, no problem. What? Amber, you didn't get pizza. <laughs> Got to come to Wisconsin to get pizza. <laughs> hey, we have Domino's here and you have the Internet. That's all I have to say. <laughs> uh but you have a chance to plug uh, your your writing efforts. Yes. So I write Shakespearean fan fiction for young adults and <laughs> old adults. Um, because, is, I mean, is, would you say? It. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Fan fiction has a, has a sort of negative connotation. It's not. That's true. It's not amateur it, so in any way. Like, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Thank you. So um, I, I call it uh, Percy Jackson, but with Shakespeare stuff instead of Greek myth. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so that maybe is a little bit of a better pitch. But my first book came out a year ago, and it was called Cauldron's Bubble, and it's Cauldron's Possessive, so it's apostrophe S. And then my second book just came out in October, and it's called Double Double Toil. And my third book, which I can talk about, is coming out on August 19th of 2019, and that's called Trouble Fires Burn. So uh, check them out. It makes more sense if you read them in order, but... You can probably figure it out if you're smart enough to be listening to this podcast. You can <laughs> jump right into the middle. And where can people find you? Oh, yeah. So um, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Amber Elby, E-L-B-Y. And 90% of my tweets are about my children and husband saying things that are much funnier than I say. <laughs> and uh, I also have a website. It's AmberLB.com. But my books are on Amazon. It's the best place to buy them, unless you live in Austin, which I'm imagining many of you do not. But if you do, go to Book People, because it's a really cool bookstore. <laughs>
And as usual, you can uh, visit our website at cinematicrespect.com. And if you have not subscribed to the podcast, please subscribe. It's easy on the website. Uh, Follow us on Twitter, uh, Letterboxd, and Instagram. Oh, Amber, so you've listened to this podcast that Charlie does, right? Um, Wait, he does a podcast? <laughs> the one that we're on. <laughs> he does it with Jessica what? normally, and that's why it's so confusing, because she's not here today. No, um, Wait, you're not Jessica? What's going on? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Oh, of course oh, I listen to you guys. Sorry, I'm Jessica. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> I, I can't do can't do a girl voice. <laughs> I don't know why, but that voice... Made the dog run over. Yeah, he was very interested in that. <laughs> he was like, oh, what's this? <laughs> I thought you were dying. <laughs> <laughs> anyway.